Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 55 of the podcast, the topic is AI for medicine. Our guest is Thomas Klozel, CEO and founder of Okin, the federated data network startup boosting AI for medicine. In this conversation, we talk about integrating AI and system biology to enable breakthrough medical moments. We explore how machine learning can be used to improve medical and biological research. In Okin's federated learning approach, the data stays with the owners, but the learning models travel. We discuss the data heterogeneity in healthcare, the need for interoperability, and we touch on hype versus reality. Thomas, how are you doing today? I'm great, John. So nice to be with you. And yes, <laughs> it's been a while. And what are you doing in Switzerland? What's going on? I know it's surprising. I surprised myself. I mean, we literally like were banned from the US <laughs> in March. <laughs> and we left we left the US thinking like we're gonna be in France for months by the by in Brittany by the water, and we realized we wouldn't be able to go back. So we had to choose anywhere international with a good research spirit. And here we are, Geneva. It's great. Love it so far. <laughs> wow. COVID has really thrown a wrench into, into a lot of stuff, including, uh, including startup collaboration and people's lifestyles and, uh, and, and everything. Well, well, let's get into all of it. I, I wanted to kick it off, though. Um, Thomas, we met uh, at the Founders Forum, I believe, right? So uh, you, you're, you know, heavily steeped in the uh, founder environment for for a while. So that's kind of how I know you. But I know from your background that you have a past as a, a clinical research professor in Paris, right, in yeah. hematology. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, uh, you know, bring that up, and because I think it's probably relevant. There are a lot of People starting uh, AI startups these days with something to do with medical, but not all of them, you know, have have that much of a of a true medical research background. Um, and then you've also been in the U.S., uh, right, in uh, uh, Cornell, Wild Cornell Medical College, and in New York a little bit. Yeah. Um, other than that, I don't know too much about your background. Other than you know, you founded uh, uh, Okin, right, with uh, mm-hmm. Jill uh, uh, Weinrib. So I wanted to ask you. Just as a as a kickoff here, what would you say in in kind of in your background has meant the most to you in in your professional career, and you know what has led you to where you are right now? Yeah, I mean, um, thanks for the question, Tron. And so I, I'm an oncologist by training, and I really wanted to learn how to treat patients, and uh, and trying to treat patients is a very complex problem that is totally unsolved today, especially in cancer. Who would think that we would be here uh, in cancer therapy? Of course, there is a lot of progresses, CAR T cells, immunotherapy, but we still don't get it. We don't understand the biology. We don't understand why some people uh, respond to anti-PD-1 therapy, although they are PD-1 negative. We are keeping on calling some cancer by a negative terms, such as non-small cell lung cancer. We know it's non-small cell, but we don't know what it is. Or triple negative breast cancer. Okay, it's triple negative, but what is it? And uh, we still have this really lack of comprehension. And therefore, when I started to be a clinician, I, I was like, I-, I don't want to treat my patient as a patient only. I want to understand how many clones there is in this cancer. I want to map the, can- the clones, understand the probability of relapse for every clone. And I really wanted to understand how to map out the heterogeneity of the tumors and really understand how, how we could make, you know, like more direct, uh, change the way we treat patients. And I started to be interested in different technologies and machine learning was one of the one that was the closest from the nature because you can actually have nonlinear models that fits better to what's real. And I started to be very interested in this field. Thomas, I'm fascinated by this because you know I have uh, looked at this topic from 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 various angles, and one of the things that strikes me with with healthcare is that because it is so extremely specialized at times, to bring these two, and it's not even just two, I'm sure, but even just if you take computer science and you add medical science, and then you actually add clinical medicine or or the daily practice of actually being a, a, a doctor in a primary care situation, 
and you meld and mold those two together, the initial matchup isn't very obvious at all, is it? I don't know. I mean, yeah. both in terms of like combining the knowledge, but also they are so different. Yeah, but I think every, I think like first you have to think about the future of, of physicians, right? What is a physician tomorrow? Uh, I see a physician as a as a machine teacher. He's going to teach machines. He's teaching students, of course, but he's teaching other people. He's also going to teach AI because AI is going to be part of his daily life, right? He's doing it when he's on Facebook without knowing it, but he has to know how he's going to teach robots and machines to help him out in his practice. Hmm. And, and really understanding, like, and I think like if you're a radiologist today and you're not interested in AI, oh my God, you're not interested in what's going to replace you, right? <laughs> so it doesn't make sense, right? And I, I think like everyone should do that and I think everyone should code to be able to have some access to, to, to more knowledge and, uh, by themselves. So, so Thomas, I, I love that you start from that side because you know one of the things that I really, really like about you and I admire so much is you're very humble. And to start with talking about the kind of the weaknesses in your own original profession and start from that point, I think, is a very powerful message because a, a lot of people would start from the other angle. They would say, AI is so advanced and you know these doctors have no idea. But I mean, th there obviously must be the other side of the coin, which is if you are a software programmer today, the amount of medical knowledge that you would really have a need to operate and be useful in an AI for medicine context, wouldn't that also be very demanding? No, yeah, I think I think first every oncologist is humble when you try to treat cancer patients. You have to be, and uh, yeah, I think like the it's I think like the the way to take the, the medical approach to AI versus the AI approach or the software engineering approach to medicine is complementary. I think the the way we operate as as physicians is way more unsupervised. Uh, you know, we we know that we don't know. Uh, which is a Socrates approach <laughs> type of things. And so therefore, we, we, we actually want to find a few questions that can match and be answered by AI. Uh, AI is more, mostly trying to fit some models everywhere and trying to find things, even there are black box. And, and, uh, and I think it's, it's a, we are, they're more like, the way we think as physicians is we need to create knowledge here and there and let's try to, to fill this gap. Uh, but I think today what's the most important thing in the field of AI is this connection between key opinion leaders and medical researchers and data scientists, and they need to work together. If you're a pure data science company working with software engineers and you don't have a medical background, you're going to build some things that are going to be black box, not useful, and you're not going to be able to actually have the usage of it. Uh, and I think understanding the performances is as important as understanding the usage of this algorithm. And you're going to miss this part. And the second thing is you're going to also miss what's the breakthrough within the models. Every model, if it works, has some breakthrough. Some features can be new targets of drugs. And, and you really need to be to be able to understand what it means on the patient side and patient level. And mm. I think this is, yeah, the interactions between the two is very important. And AI has to be interpretable for, the, for physicians to actually understand how it works. But physicians also need to understand how they can teach machines to be better and how they can monitor the performances of these models. This is very important as well. In, in the acceleration phase of, of algorithm, if you don't know how to monitor the performances and benchmark it to re the reality, you can be a little bit like under the hype. And, and a lot of things today in AI is hyped. Um, I'm happy. Yeah. I, Thomas, I wanted to ask you about these two things. So before we, and, and we're going to talk about, you know, precisely your approach, your chosen approach as well. But I wanted to do two things first. One, if you could map the AI for medicine space for us. Put it yeah. a little bit into categories of what yeah, we're yeah, doing exactly. because that's number one. And then number two, we'll get to the hype versus reality. And then, yeah. you know, I, I so so let's start with mapping the AI space. What are the different things that even startups or practitioners or you know how do you box this field? It's Who a really good what? question. I'm sure you have a different answer, and I'd love to hear it too, because your experience at DMIT will give you a lot of feedback too. And, and so my feeling is like, so I always think AI as first, there is really two sides of it, and I box it in two parts, acceleration and augmentation. It's really how people should think about it, right? The first is uh, really like how you actually accelerate processes and diagnosis. You go faster, you can do like a thousand CT scan reading per day. And the other one is augmentation. How do you get superpowers? How can you predict from a CT scan a survival? How you can predict a response to treatment? How you can discover within a model new genes that can be targets of, of, of innovative drugs? So I think the first way to really think about it is thinking about um, do you want are you in the augmentation and accelerate or acceleration phase and the both are very different because of course augmentation is better it's more exciting 
uh, for doctors. It doesn't threaten their roles as a radiologist, for example. And so it gives them superpowers to do new things. So they really like it. But acceleration, of course, is also very important to, to on the daily workflow to make things more efficient. The second way to really think about AI, I think first, when you, when you know where you are in these two parts is what is the data access and the data preparation part? And what is the data analytics side, right? And I think both are extremely important in AI. Probably the first is the most important one is how you access high quality data sets, especially in, in medical fields, there is a lot of regulation, GDPR being the most stringent in Europe. Uh, you also have HIPAA. And the second part is the, the analytics and the algorithm. And I think like how you actually find a really good way to access the best data sets to train uh, and, and, and then the right algorithm to, to have something that works and how your model can be uh, generalizable. This is the last part is you need to think about the performances, the accuracy, but you also need to think about robustness and how you can generalize the model. It's a big problem for AI. Anyone can build an AI model on shelf. It works for his data, and then it never works on any other people's data. And then the usage, the, how you integrate this uh, in the workflow is very important too. So I, I take these three levels of reflection when I think about AI. That's, fun. That's fascinating. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, data access, just because I know you know there's more coming here, because you have this concept of federated learning. Before we get to Okin specifically, just explain to me what are the specific uh, data sets that one typically thinks of when it comes to AI for medicine? Because I know in the field of biomedicine, there's an enormous amount of databases, and historically they weren't even cooperating, right? So they were competitors. Some of them are private. Some of them are locked down by by law. Uh, and then there's an awful lot of databases that don't really have what you, as a computer scientist, traditionally would think of as big data, right? There are a lot of databases that have actually a bunch of small data. So talk to me a little bit more about data access and how you, how you think about it and how, and how people in the space think about it. I think exactly. So I think like there is two sides of that access is what type of data you want to access to. And the second one is how do you want to access it to? So for the first type of data access, there is different type of data. The first one are what we call at Okin fit for AI data sets. Is data sets that are multimodal, longitudinal, uh, usually retrospective, and are created by the best key opinion leaders in the world. They're like data sets of 10 years of research on breast cancer with single cell, CT scan, mammographics, everything. And, and built with the mind of somebody that has questions in mind. For us, this is very, very, very important and interesting because it, you, data scientists can just log in and just try to make models and understand mm -hmm. things. Research data sets, the best in the world. Is there a big market for that for the, for the clients? Maybe not because it's really R&D use, but it's very rich in the idea. The second one is really like data that are more EHR data, like clinical features data that are mapped for a lot of hospitals in the world and can be used for pricing or market access for pharma and therefore bring a lot of economic value and not only scientific value. And of course, I bought for much larger prices. And so this is two types of different data. It's like very high quality data sets, thousands of patients maximum, or just like big chunks of patients, EHR mapped in the world, uh, sometimes millions of patients. Of course, the second one is, is uh, more big data based and, and has a lot of economic value. The second way is how you access data. So there, there is a data economy that exists in the US. It's very clear. Hospitals are data brokers. They're vendors, sorry. They really sell data every day. In the Europe, with the GDPR regulation, it's not the same. And therefore, you have a lot of uh, a hurdle to actually broke data. You also have a big hurdle to use the GAFA technology around for the cloud data storage. We have a big story now with the Health Data Hub. It's a French uh, institution that is trying to gather the best data sets of research of academics in France. And they was wanted to store that on Microsoft Azure cloud. Guess what? Big problems. No way. We are French. We're not doing that. <laughs> I know that they have to take the data out, whatever. But this is, this is another problem. But I think like it's very, but it still reveals a lot of uh, how you want to store data. So I think, the, the, are we okay with the data brokerage and the data economy in Europe? Not really. And I think like uh, uh, we need to find alternative ways to access data without having to share them. And this is our idea with federated learning is we want to build a privacy-preserving approach where physicians will trust you, patients will trust you, and where like, people will exchange AI without sharing data. So the idea of federated learning is you access data on-premise that never leaves the hospitals. You can build an algorithm and a model on-premise within the hospital firewall. 
And then you can, the algorithm can travel and model and be trained with other hospitals, but it completely respects the privacy of patients and it doesn't include a, a, a re-identification risk. This is very important. Today, people say it's okay to block data because we have anonymized data sets. So it's fine. The truth is it's impossible because too many people have a, a genomic genotyping data set such as 23andMe in the US, yeah. for example, and you can always cross it with the, this database. And therefore, whenever you have a database that has genomics, it cannot be perfectly... Well, well, exactly, exactly. The moment you have genomic data, you can cross-match and you can at least know something about yeah about the data. So, so data never leaves the premises. That, that's, that's interesting. Um, before we go into uh, to Oaken, because I, I do have a, a bunch of questions on, on what you are doing, tell me a little bit about how you see hype versus reality. Because... Clearly, this is a space where there's now accelerated investment, which means new actors are getting into the space that haven't really invested either in AI or medical, and now they're investing in AI for medical. Um, so what does the space look like? Who do you see as kind of the, uh, the actors to reckon with? And are they only startups, by the way? Or is this also a topic where larger hospitals or larger medical and pharma firms really have a stake in, in, in the game at this point? It's a really good question. I think like first, to, to end, I'm starting by the end, but I, pharma industry is trying to build a lot of, inter, uh, of efforts of AI internally. And they really have a strategy of internal uh, innovation, really about building huge teams, accessing data everywhere, regrouping their own data sets. You have to imagine that pharma industry is a big hard time to regroup their own clinical trial data because they were working with CROs here and there. So they don't even have the data lakes completely uh, formed. So I think like there's, there's, there's a lot of innovation in pharma. Some are, are very ready. They have a lot of data sets, they have a lot of a big team. We call them pharma, AI ready pharma, and some are less ready. Uh, but that's a, that's, a, that's a really big thing uh, 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 around the space. Can you can you name drop? I mean, is it yeah, I mean, visible? Rush, and Rush, Rush Novartis Bayer, probably the three one top one, uh, uh, and maybe J and J, probably the, the the fourth one that really has built. I, I have seen a strategy. Rush has seen the strategy of acquiring Flatiron to access community clinic CHR data in the US. They have foundation medicine with this, like you know, like genotyping uh, uh, technologies, and then they have. Patients in common between, the, um, I think it's around, I don't know, 50K, 60K, I'm not sure about the number, but that I have both Flatiron and and, uh, and Foundation Medicine, and therefore they have a lot of capabilities uh, to, to understand on the data side. So that access, ready. And then they have hired Mark Lee, who is the head of PHC team. Uh, he was at very live before, Dynamic Health. Somebody that knows, he's a clinician too, like me, a nematologist, and, and has a really strategy about how to build AI at scale, and he's bringing a lot of technologies inside. So I think Rush has been number one in terms of data access. And then we have Novartis, and Novartis is building great stuff. So there is Bertrand Botson, the head of digital, that is really pushing efforts uh, on the digital health as well as AI side. I think it's very important also that people remember it's very different. <laughs> and sometimes people mix up a little bit both, right? But digital health is really something you can do with your mobile phone. AI is a really more broader space. Uh, but on the question of the hype, I really think that uh, today the question is, during COVID, how many drugs were built by uh, machine learning technologies? Well, 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 I really like, and, and at the end, like, not that many, right? And what did really AI brought to COVID as an example? It brought some triage questions that were interesting. But however, you know, like if you're a physician today, it's very important to have triage questions. But you know that if the patient is obese or have uh, preliminary problems or is old, you already know kind of, you can already have a good triage by your own intelligence. Although some technologies can be, can really help. I, I find that fascinating, actually, Thomas. Uh, you know, in some way, COVID was extremely revealing on, on many, many, uh, sides of society and not just medical science, but it's certainly, it's almost like if only COVID had come five years later. I mean, I've heard, you know, experts talk about the, the fact that synthetic biology, for instance, you know, is so close to its breakthrough moment, but we were almost, we were, we are five years too early. So the people who are in that space have had to kind of patch up their work and refocus and kind of just scramble. Yeah, but the platform wasn't there. Like, you, know, no, right? you know, no one could just turn around and turn on CRISPR and tweak this button and, and, and then build, you know, what the hype perhaps said that we could build. Exactly. The same for drug discovery a little bit. So I think, I think like drug discovery has a lot of hype uh, in AI. 
And, uh, and the reality is there are great companies. In Silico, great company. In Citro, good company. And other companies are, 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 are in recursion, very good company too. Uh, building new stuff, finding their own data sets. But the problem first with drug discovery is they never really had the, the good training sets to train their models. If you want to build, build a model to, to, to train your binding of a molecule, to a, what do you need? You need access to the molecular data of the pharma industry. You need to the, the, the molecular pipeline and, and they never give this to you. And we, we are with Federated Learning, find a technology to actually do that without sharing the data. But I think drug discovery and drug discovery also has been too much black box. And I think you need to build like quantic physics, a lot of, a lot of things. I was talking to Jérôme Pesanti, who was the former CEO of, uh, of, um, of Benevolent and, and now is uh, the former VP of AI at Facebook. And he was like, probably we didn't, we didn't include enough like, you know, like physics. Uh, we were just building algorithms to predict things, but you need to, there is randomness. There is a lot of things when a molecule binds to a target. And, and that, that's really it. So today, is, is AI better than a really good chemist to build a new drug? I'm really not sure. Wow. I mean, those are strong words from a startup <laughs> founder in the space that has secured venture funding. Uh, it's interesting. I, well, I like uh, it. I think I just have to say what I understand about the space. Yeah, I know, right? But no, uh, and that's why I like to hear from you. So let's let's move straight into let's move move into uh, uh, Oaken for for a while. Tell me just why did you start it and what are you focused on? Our, um, I studied Okin when I was a physician just because I wanted to bring new ways to build precision medicine, right? And the precision medicine is, I was trying to find, uh, I was a lymphoma guy and I was trying to build predictors with genomic signatures and epigenomic signatures integrated to, resp to predict response to ARCHOP, which is the, the, the regular therapy, the classical reference therapy for lymphoma. But it was not working out that well. That was at Wake Cornell uh, with Professor Malnick. And then... I discovered that there was new technologies to, to try to make prediction, which is AI. So the idea of Hawking was, how can we make prediction that will help medical research? Uh, then we, what we really realized is like how hard it was for the pharma industry to work with academics and the best to access the right data sets and actually to be, to access the right models. And, and how hard it was also for some academics to have the right AI capabilities, respecting the patient's data. So the idea of Hawking was really trying to connect everyone together to really create unprecedented connections to build this new ecosystem where people can share uh, AI models, making a very global AI that can actually generalize uh, with respecting the patient's privacy. You know, I talking when you work with us, what's our policy on data? It's not always true with other companies. And, and then trying to build this environment where data scientists connect to physicians, physicians connect to other physicians with federated learning, and, and pharma connects to the, to, to, the, to the hospitals to actually use the best AI that was built on site and improve how they develop that drug. So we really tried to focus on drug development and build this ecosystem. And, and, and gradually, we understood what was the best use case uh, to actually use all the insights and knowledge we were creating within this federated ecosystem. Fascinating. And and what has the experience been? Who who are you working with, and and what do you find to be the best use cases for federated learning at this point in time? I think we we have a really flagship project. We have two flagship projects, but the first one is is really on an unprecedented level. It's it kind of covers seventy billion of assets. It's called Melody. And Melody Project is a project that uh, uh, is granted by European fundings and actually regroup 10 of the largest pharma in the world sharing models around drug discovery without sharing the data and using Okin technology. Uh, there is other like industrial partners, but Okin is really the orchestrator on the federated learning side and the privacy and trustability side. And we do this with our software called Connect that has been installed where people can just log in, have a remote access to data and actually launch a federated learning algorithm. Uh, on the, and this algorithm can be traceable, uh, it can be federated, and it's extremely secure. You never can know who puts which data on the, on the model. And it's the first time the pharma are collaborating on the molecular libraries. It's the biggest asset. It's a treasure that they're sitting on. They never want to share that. And, and it's really breaking silos, breaking competitive silos, just to build something all together. And all the pharma at the end will benefit from the same model and the same insights. This is so cool. I mean, sky is the limit for federated learning. What about trying to, uh, to, to work on Alzheimer's disease? Everything fails. Every clinical trial fails. 
Pharma won't share the raw data, but why not building a federated learning algorithm that can learn about the insights of these failed trials without taking the data out of the pharma firewalls? Same for glioblastoma. No trial is positive on glioblastoma, brain tumors, right? Why? Because we don't even we can't even know if a tumor shrinks or not on the CD, on the MRI because it never really shrinks. So uh, we need AI systems and we need like to to source insights in a collaborative way. Federated learning is open innovation and it's really about breaking silos everywhere. Thomas, this is fascinating. Tell me, you speak about shared algorithm. That surprises me a little because I thought federated learning was mostly to share the data, but are they also sharing the algorithm? No, the real idea of federated learning is data stays on premise. On the I understand, but they're sharing they're sharing something, and what they're sharing is the the, the algorithm they... built on all the data at the end. The federated learning algorithms that will benefit from it as a model. Uh, yes, okay, but are they sharing the results of that algorithm crunching, or are are those no, specific? Gonna... To... So they are specific to each partner. The the results can be trained every locally on each partners, and specific the results are specific on there. But then the yeah. algorithm trained on everyone and the performance, the algorithm can be trained and tested as it is by all the companies on new molecular uh, assets. I'm with you. But just you know, for a layperson, the point is these 10 companies don't necessarily have to develop the same technologies all the way through. They can work on the same platform. They're sharing their data, but they can take away. So Roche could take away lesson A and build product A. And Novartis could take away lesson B and build product B. And they don't necessarily have to collaborate, even though they have sort of shared Inside, access to the data. data. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yep. uh, the thing is, like, the algorithm is here, Roche is not participating, but like, in, in this case, like the pharma that are participating uh, uh, all shared some of their assets. But yeah, at the end, I think the benefit of some things I learn of everyone's assets. And and this is really where it's great. It's it's really like learning of different assets built on different like uh, settings, and uh, yeah, I mean this is really what what it's about. And at the end, it can be a shared model, so it can be a model that you can use for new molecules that you want to predict binding for, or you can use for uh, for Alzheimer. It would be insights, new biomarkers that could be shared to stratify patients for future trials. Hey, we discovered that this part of the brain predict response to treatments. And we build this with all of you, so you can use this predict, this little quantitative biomarker to stratify your patients in your next trial. I mean, this is shared knowledge at the end, or shared insights, or shared model of prediction. Um, but I think it, it, it never uncovers the, the, what is really priceless for the pharma, which is like the raw data. So tell me a little bit about what the results have been so far. Uh, well, for you, it's early days, I guess. For yeah, results. it's early days. Uh, but for others, so give me some specifics about other AI projects in medicine and what kinds of early results have we seen? So we just yeah, talked about I mean, COVID, not very impressive, but for some other things. I just give you the example of something we built at Okin because it's when I know best, uh, mesothelioma. Mesothelioma is a cancer that people die within like six to eight months in median. It's, you know, the part of the lung uh, that is usually linked uh, that, it, that covered the lungs, and uh, it was linked to abestosis when people were going in the mines. And this cancer is also linked to a mutation called BAT21, which actually makes a, the, 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 the incidence not decreasing that much. It's a very bad cancer, and no one knows how to treat it uh, for many reasons. Not the right chemotherapy, doesn't go really well in the, in the tissue. And uh, we actually had access to the largest cohort of patients in the world, thanks to our federated learning technology and the trust we create. We had 3,000 patients, and what we had is the biopsy baseline, the response to treatments, and the outcome, the survival. And we say, let's try something hard. Let's try to see if we can predict the survival using our machine learning uh, uh, platform and the technology we develop in pathology called Shouder, which pre-processes the images in very little dials before applying a CNN, a neural network. And we are literally like, say, yeah, can we predict survival using just the biopsy baseline before treatments? So when you, when you, take, when you give this to a pathologist, and he can take the tumor like that, and he looks with his microscope. He cannot really tell you if the patient might survive six to eight months or eight to 10 or 10 to 12, right? He had no idea. Uh, he can see if there is some signs of, of, of uh, infiltration or, or malignancies or, or, or division of the cells, but he cannot do that. But the, our, our model and our algorithms that we call Mesonet could. 
And what was very interesting was not that we had actually the possibility to predict survival using baseline pathology images, predicting the response to treatment as the treatment is homogeneous. What we had here is we, we could really understand how we could do that. What was interesting for us is to talk to the key opinion leaders and show them the little tiles in the image that were, that were helpful to make the prediction happen. And we discovered that there was a pattern. And the pattern was the tumor microenvironment, the, the, the periphery of the cells, what is around the tumor, is the most important part to build the model. And we, we, we confirmed this with the best key opinion leaders. And then we, did, we, did, we discovered some cells, pleomorphic cells, uh, that were really important to, to make this prediction happen. And we, we went deep dive in the, in the biology, trying to confirm. So we discovered that this trauma of the cells is important for survival and can determine new subgroups that were not known before. So we can determine with uh, high, new high-value subgroups that can be used uh, to reclassify the disease uh, in a clinical trial or in general as well. And this is so exciting. And we are, you can go to new targets, go, go, go much further, and where you actually make a real medical breakthrough using a prediction made by AI and, and collaborating with the best peers in, in the field. That's fascinating, Tom. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Tell me a little bit about how you, uh, how you see the market evolving, because we have talked, you know, vaguely about kind of the, my, my sense, and I don't have the data in front of me, but that, that the investment levels have gone up uh, in this space. How do you, and, and do you look at that at all? I mean, is it relevant to you, uh, you know, to what extent this market for, for AI and medicine is, is sort of, growing at what percentage like how do you see this market evolving yeah. more importantly it's a very good question i think there is two sides of here there's the side of the, the ai market in healthcare and the, the data market right uh, it's always yeah. a little bit intrigued so uh, the data market exists it's a uh, buying data for medicine everywhere for payers as well as pharma is a big thing mostly like data clinical data mapped for pricing and market reasons a lot of value here uh, big business, acquisition of Fataron was a great company happened, but there is Concert AI, a lot of new company like uh, that also do the same. Uh, a lot of really Trinity's great company here. Uh, when you also do that, usually you also on the data, the clinical trial operations, can I recruit patients based on this data for my clinical trials? And it is something very important too. It's one of the priority of very high, building a registry to actually be able to do that. And I mean, really like the baseline study is very, I mean, whenever you touch to pricing or clinical operations, you hear your big money and, and the market is, is, is mature, right? You have teams in place, you have budget in place, lines. There is a line in the budget is buying real world evidence data, buying pricing, market access data. That's okay. Uh, when you go to AI, I think it's a really new market and 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 uh, and there is no really lines of budget here to to do that and of course if you build a new molecules and if you succeed you have big line of budget that will be developed uh, but a lot of things today in AI is repurposing drugs which is always complicated on the IP and patent side uh, it's not easy to 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 defend these patents and I think like whenever you touch to more like the R&D of the of the pharma thing of course the budget even if you're super innovative the budget are less important and therefore, the market of AI for drug development, for example, I think is, is going to really blow and, and grow. Sorry, it's going to grow, not blow. Uh, but it's, it will take a few years because today uh, the pharma has to open to, to, to these technologies to really make them. But, but the reality is you can really change how you uh, um, understand the clinical trials with AI and you can do a lot of things. But yeah, I think the, the market will be more mature when these tools will be regulatory graded. Uh, people want the stamp of the FDA or the MEA. And also, like, I think, that, yeah, it's going to grow. I think the budget will change and and have this. But today, I mean, like, the market is very segmented. It's really pricing and operations and the R&D on the other side. And depending where you fit, uh, your possibility to grow on the scale of revenues is not the same. So you, you were kind of hinting at this that, well, two things. One, big pharma isn't necessarily uh, in the best position right now to handle this. Uh, are you thinking that there's a bit of a fear or even sort of like wishful thinking that this is going to take much longer to come to fruition and that the big yeah. pharma is kind of playing the game that the automotive industry was playing with electric vehicles? They're sort of saying, deep down, we know this is going to happen, but it's not really in our interest to have it happen too soon. So we're not going to turn our entire business model around, throw out everything we ever knew about clinical trials and go this digital route 
because what if it takes five, 10 years, then, you know, all of this revenue that we could have had, is that the game they're playing or is it a more fundamental lack of understanding or are they actually not playing? They're just more realists. I think they're all very different on that. But I think like just to, to, to take you on the analogy of, of, uh, of automatic cars, it's very interesting how, how, the, how the, the, the perception of AI for automatic cars and pharma, for example, is completely different. For example, when you, when you drive your Tesla, are you asking, hey, uh, please, Tesla, give me the AUC accuracy, give me all the model facts uh, of your autopilot drive. I want to be sure. And then, oh my God, like 0 0.87, I'm not going to drive. You know, you don't actually ask the same stuff. When you go to a pharma and you build AI, you want to understand the model facts, which patients you were trained on, how you how you generalize it, what's the biology. I mean, first, I think the requirements for the pharma is very, very different. But I think the game of, so the pharma, I think is, is starting to understand how to play with AI around. I think the pharma, um, uh, there is not much acquisition M&A space in, in this space yet. So I think they just want to try out different solutions around, build a lot of industrial efforts. But I think the problem with pharma and AI today is a cultural problem. It's very different to work in a pharma than working at Google. It's way more corporate. And I think today, I'm not sure the pharma is attracting the best talent in AI. If you're a data scientist and you're number one on Kaggle, you probably want to go to Google and not to a pharma company today. And I, well, I, I, well, Thomas, I, there there are those that say that it's just a question of time and actually of time. strategy it's, before big tech will take over pharma and not the I other way around. Too. I mean, in a, in a way, yes. I mean, uh, if you see Google, will be able to make clinical trials with 20,000 patients. <laughs> and uh, I think pharma still have, an, I, I really love pharma because I think they're the most innovative company on their way. And I think actually really great data scientists are starting to go. And I think in two years, three years, probably the best data scientists want to go to pharma and make sense of it. But I think today there is still a place for a startup ecosystem where that are really between the tech and the pharma. This is exactly us. We're right between both. We take both of both worlds and we are neutral, but we have this cultural AI fit, very geeky. And I think this is for the pharma. I think they have all interest today of not internalizing these efforts, but trying to keep things around them and, uh, and, and play around with. And I think the strategy of the pharma today is they know it's going to be super attractive to the best talents in two to three years. Uh, they're, they're not putting huge budget because they want to wait and see which is actually makes sense, right? Because a lot of things are, is very overhyped and, and doesn't really fit. Uh, and, uh, and maybe in the, I think to two to three years, they made, made some big acquisition on the AI side, but I would not expect it before my, my take. Fantastic. So, so Thomas, how does this then apply to governments? I mean, you are yourself involved in an EU project. EU finances, the EU finances a, a, a plethora of projects, both in AI and AI for health. And, and, and then clearly also has very strong views on on privacy and and you you mentioned early gdpr but there's certainly a bunch of other health regulations that apply in the eu and then of course in the in the us with uh, hepa and uh with hipaa and, and and other uh regulations what what is government if you were advising government right now what if anything can they do apart from sort of watch this space unfold at this point they can take they can take government decisions I mean, so take the example of France. Very good physicians, uh, public data sets. The problem is who does the data sets belong to and the data. If you do a CT scan in Paris, in the public hospitals, uh, that's not happening in Emily in Paris, but might happen in the real life. Are you going to do that? Uh, does it belong to you, the CT scan? Or does it belong to the country? Because you pay zero, right? right? Or you pay some taxes. Um, I think no one knows. There is a lot of confusion about who data belongs to in Europe and many different levels. Even in the US, it's not that clear. Therefore... Uh, I think as a government, we could take the decision saying every data produced in the public hospitals belongs to the government. You can certainly opt out in some ways, but it belongs to the government. And you're building a very fundamental asset uh, about like having regrouped, mapped, understood all your health data built in your uh, social ecosystem. And why not, right? But you need to make it clear. Uh, it means that it belongs to the hospitals and the government. It does not belong to you. You cannot sell your data online because you can't do this today, right? <laughs> uh, and I think like maybe it's not a very liberal choice. I don't know. But this is a choice that could be taken on a high level by government. Uh, and there is enough confusion about who, who owns what to do that. Well, there's confusion about who owns what, but there must also be some confusion in governments about uh, do we know enough to regulate this right now, like I'm, I'm sure they're scared of of messing things up, both for their established powerhouses, you know, their France, for instance, and Switzerland, and other countries that do have big pharma. I'm sure they don't want to 
do something that could become a big problem and and, and vice versa they don't want to get the population against them i mean if they yeah, start yeah, saying hey you're right you know and and they're you know privacy laws in the eu so this is it's a yeah, little it be, i mean if you think the population would react well <laughs> uh in france there could be like some uh, yeah there would be some strikes for sure because this is what french do uh but uh and uh, in general yeah i mean probably it's a uh, taking your data out is a prevention of of liberty but in france whenever you 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 know like i think it's uh, something that you would give for the the good, greater good right uh, it's better research it's better, it could help your your operations in the hospitals to work better uh, so i mean yeah but of course like the thing about having data that are not your own is the payers paradigm everybody's afraid of payers at uh, primes and taxes on that so uh, the payers yeah. with way payers will pay and of course yeah. this is something that everybody has in mind yeah. Thomas, can I get some predictions out of you? If you look at the next decade in your space, AI for medicine, what, what what's going to happen? What How fast is this going to move? I mean, considering all the things we've talked about, the technology opportunities on one hand, the um, you know government constraints on the other, the innovation in the startup space, the existing pharma industry, which is slightly entrenched, but maybe you know uh, also waiting for the right moment to either start acquiring and understanding more, or obviously to react. If big tech starts to make moves into pharma, then they would have to look more like big tech. But how fast is this going to unfold? And with what consequences for kind of changing the the laws of fundamental science and 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 benefiting you know sick patients which i think is is both of our concerns and and certainly you know should be a very very big concern you know covid is one thing but there are so many diseases where like you pointed out in various types of cancer you could see it the glass hemp, half empty view would be we haven't made that much progress in cancer in 30 years no I, I really believe like AI, uh, it's a really good question and it's really broad. Uh, I, I believe like first, uh, what will change in the full spectrum, AI will accelerate many processes in hospitals, will accelerate operations that will benefit to the patients directly. Uh, will probably be better in some diagnoses at physicians that are hard. For, will better detect uh, patients for rare diseases. You know, patients today sometimes they never detected for rare diseases. That will be predicted on the CT scan, a spectrum of rare diseases, and you will have diagnosis. In rare diseases, something we we'll never think about. The research will be federated without competitive silos, uh, people sharing algorithms thanks to Hawking technology and federated learning. Uh, pharma will use some insights here and there and some technologies here and there. It won't be fully, completely integrated in the next five years' work pharma workflow. I don't think so. It takes 10 years. We'll take probably the quantum computers to accelerate everything too. Quantum computers, very important step. Uh, but I think pharma will have some technology here and there, some insights used, uh, and we'll, we'll use an AI approach to access data as well. Uh, probably in a privacy-preserving way, as, as we believe. Uh, I think like patients will have will own the data and use some blockchain technologies, not really AI, but uh, it can be linked to to sell the data and make money from it. I think a lot of patients will make a lot of money from their own data sets because uh, the data sets will become a bigger and bigger commodity, and people will give a lot of price and money to 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 own that. Uh, and yeah, I mean, and, and and finally, I think the the payers will a lot of companies will will both play with the payers and pharma game, which is a complicated game uh, to me. I mean, uh, and uh, and the payers, the spectrum between the payers and whatever they do with your data is going to be more and more complex because what is the interesting prediction if you're a payer is who is going to die very early without going to the hospitals. It's pretty only predictions I'm very interested in. <laughs> and it's I sad agree. to say. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating time we live in because presumably this decade will, will really you know, whether it goes as fast or slow as you said, or it goes much faster, like hype says, or or, or far, far slower, like, you know, kind of our uh, straw man pharma executive hopes, you know, that it'll take a little longer. How do you make these determinations? I always ask my guests, how do you, on your own, track these trends? How do you stay up to date? How do you glean those insights that are needed to make the predictions you just made. Can you give the uh, listeners some idea of, in this field, 
I mean, do you just track other startup founders? Do you? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's a, it's a mix of uh, tracking of the companies around, uh, having a lot of collaborative efforts. I mean, AI is really about uh, uh, collaboration. I mean, uh, the, the, the CEO of Insilico, Alex Vonkorov, is somebody that's really like trying to create the connection and the links between every pharma in the world, uh, every AI company. So we have an ecosystem called AAI Edge in the US to speak only to regulators with one voice. And with recursion, with uh, a numerate uh, in silico, and really this guy has been central into linking these efforts and having people discussing around the table. So I think we kind of all know each other, and we are quite collaborative. I don't think there is no secrets. Uh, we have the we are very open source minds. People are like not like share share what you succeed in and share your. What, what, yeah. I had a I had a brunch I had a brunch this morning with Adam from AI Cure, and we were discussing like, hey man, what's working with you? What's hard? It's a complicated business anyway. So anyway, so first like yeah, discussing very openly. I think then trying to track how, what's the thinking change in the pharma industry too, because pharma is going to be the driver to build new drugs, and they're doing amazing stuff today. But really understanding how they think about AI and having discussion at different levels, from the very top level, C levels, to to people that are the data scientists within these companies, very important sides to take. Um, and uh, and I think like the last thing is about yeah understanding what's the impact on the on the peer review papers we have publications Nature Medicine and the new papers that go out and sometimes you have great discoveries that don't generalize well and I think like a lot of no the big question is if you show something is it robust can you use it everywhere in the world uh, and the, with the same accuracy and the same AUC so really with the same same performances and and the usage show me usage. And I think like if this comes and there is more, uh, sorry, there will be a lot more like uh, payers will be ready to pay uh, and that will drive a lot of things. Because today, like the, the fact that payers don't pay back the, the diagnosis uh, AI made by AI, it really, really like uh, gives a lot of like, uh, uh, it's a big, uh, it's a big problem for, for people. Uh, mm. they cannot, if you do a diagnosis company in AI and payers don't pay, the business is really hard. Yeah, I mean, so the business model, right? I mean, that's one aspect we didn't spend so much time on, but uh, maybe maybe I can come back to you later and we'll talk more about the, the different emerging business models uh, w within this space. Uh, and uh, maybe I could just ask you in one minute to kind of explain what you think is, well, first off, maybe the easiest, what's Okin's business model? Where, where do you earn, earn the money? Because, you know, where the money is coming from is really going to determine the interest of big pharma as well because yeah. if it's a business model that fits with theirs that's one thing if it's completely uh you know perpendicular now th they're going to fight against it so so how do you see those business models evolving uh, i think we've been lucky with okin because we we kept uh, we we have really good revenue tra revenues and traction the idea is we we kept quite a large spectrum of products uh because you need to adapt to pharma that are ai ready and the one that are not ai ready you actually want to be a critic. So I think the first step is really being a critical friend to every pharma, whatever stage they are. And, um, and today our business model is really like at different levels. It's a data platform, is accessing models of prediction, and is actually using Okin uh, knowledge to use these models within a clinical development workflow into clinical trials or into patient identification for commercialization. And so we have given three levels, and the three kind of fits at different different pharma biotechs uh, stages. Of course, data it's never brokerage; it's remote access and execution of models uh, by pharma data scientists. So I think like the, the fact we built these three layers really helped us out, uh, and uh, and uh, and we 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 have we are we are very fair and and transparent on the results and what we expect and and the biology and we're going deeply. So that kind of really worked out and and seems to be a really scalable business model with these three layers. I think it's very hard. It's, it's it, we choose the, the the horizontal approach, having technology that is multimodal, multi-disease, uh, and not really super focusing. And I think this is something that is a choice by it's our vision, uh, Gilles and I. We we see far, but sometimes it's hard because when you raise money, people want you to be hyper focused on something, right? So it's a choice. Do you want to be super vertical? Are you okay to be quite agnostic and horizontal? It's a really important question in the business of uh, AI startup. That's uh, very profound, and I think that is going to be a, a big question that venture investors will be asking, but a pharma will also be asking. Corporate investors will be asking themselves that question because you know one thing that I actually heard uh, in the MIT circles uh, working with pharma was there were actually some of our big pharma companies coming to campus and they were advising startups to not listen to VCs in this case because the typical VC angle on things is, 
close down, focus on one thing, do that well, yeah. and then get your company a good price and some, you know, and some good money. And then just do that, get that thing into the clinic. And then we can start talking. But we had but, to have different, yeah, we had the chance personally to have venture, venture capitalists that understood that they wanted to also explore the business with us. And, uh, and they understood the company of being uh, hypothesis driven. When I raised money with Google, Google Venture, our main investors, I went to San Francisco with Jill and we told them, we, we are testing this business model. Is this the right one? We are not sure. And we, I don't know. And uh, and I think we've been. Uh, it was quite refreshing <laughs> to hear from them. Uh, and I think yeah, just like um, no one knows exactly what's the future business model of AI, what's the right one. And I think we have to tell it like as it is, and not oversell. And, you know, French, we never oversell. It's something we should maybe learn to do. Uh, no, I. In yeah. fact, uh, I would argue you shouldn't learn because you know what the what these farmers were telling me in turn, and you know, honestly, they are partly to blame. So I don't know exactly why they blamed the VCs, but they were saying, well, you know. Once we get to the company, and the presumption was, you know, we don't invest early enough, the company is not as interesting as it was five years ago. Yeah. So they were complaining that the VCs were destroying their companies, making them less platform-based and, and much more focused on like single disease or single track mind, which in the end was is an impossible decision to make that early in, in that kind of company. Yeah. Anyway, but I mean, you know, right, these yeah, things I, I think will really, evolve. The way to put it is like ph AI pharma always need to run and reinvent themselves really hard. Uh, you need to run to make cash and to you, if you have no cash, you need to grow. But today, like the, the thing with uh, with AI is revenues cannot be the only metrics. It's not a side business to to, to scale your company and to raise. It's it's a lot of different stuff, right? It's how you, how you actually like uh, the data sets access. You, you edge technology. And there's a lot of things that are being taken into account. We had very smart VCs that could understand that too. But of course, revenue is still like the best proof is how strong are you on the market. And I think also like so you, people should not say revenue is not important. I'm going to have a really great data access. If you have a great data access, you make money, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah. and you need yeah. to translate this and to think about how you can scale your business. And, and Yeah, it's not either or. Look, Thomas, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you so much for, for your time. Uh, no problem. It's a pleasure. I'm sorry. I, I, love, I love the conversation. I hope to, to have you back on. You know, we're going to track uh, on, on Futurize. We're going to be tracking this field very closely. So I hope to, to have many of your peers on in the, in the time to come. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Hey, Tron. Have a really good day. Cheers. You have just listened to episode 55 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was AI for medicine. Our guest was Thomas Clozel, CEO and founder of Okin, the federated data network startup boosting AI for medicine. In this conversation, we talk about integrating AI and system biology to enable breakthrough medical moments. We explore how machine learning can be used to improve medical and biological research. In Okin's federated learning approach, the data stays with the owners, but the learning models travel. We discuss the data heterogeneity in healthcare, the need for interoperability, and we touch on hype versus reality. My takeaway is that AI for medicine is here to stay. It has come far, but has bumped into some fundamental obstacles. Interoperability, explainability, privacy, and transparency that need to be resolved before reaching its full potential. That's even more important than evolving the base technology to become more efficient. This is why federated learning is such a crucial experiment. Can it work? Will it satisfy everyone? Time will show. AI is not monolithic and neither is medicine. There seems to be many contenders for glory and there are many puzzles to solve. They won't all go away this decade. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.